So in the beginning, there was the Big Bang, but we don't really understand that, so I'm not going to talk about it right now. Uh, but what we do know was that just after the Big Bang, there was a time in which the universe was full of very hot and dense stuff. Um, and that universe was expanding, as it has been ever since. Space in that universe was expanding. And the fact that the universe was full of hot and dense stuff has some interesting consequences. And one of those consequences is that it was very hard for light to get around in that universe. Um, what happens if you put normal matter in the early universe is that the electrons which orbit the atomic nuclei have so much energy that they escape the atoms and they fill the universe. And light can only travel for a few centimetres before it hits one of these electrons and it's scattered off into a different direction. And so if I could plunge you back into the early universe... Uh, you wouldn't be able to see, you'd have many problems, but one of them is that you wouldn't be able to see more than a few centimetres in front of your face. But as the universe expands, the material cools slightly, and the electrons eventually can be captured uh, by the nuclear. And suddenly space is empty for the first time, and light can travel right across the universe. And this is a picture of light that has travelled from right across the universe from that time, just a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. It's called the Cosmic Microwave Background, you're going to be hearing a lot about it in the next couple of days because we have results from a satellite called Planck that has been staring at it for the last couple of years, coming out on Thursday. Uh, and we're very excited. I don't know what the results are going to tell us, but they will tell us about this early universe. Then things were quite dull for a while. We have what Martin Rees likes to call the Dark Ages, a period in which um, the universe was still expanding, but in which there were no stars. And at some point, somewhere the first star in the universe was born. And we think that the first stars in the universe were massive, maybe a couple of hundred times the mass of the sun. Um, we don't see them directly, but we think we might be able to pick out their light. This at the top here is a patch of sky imaged by the Spitzer Space Telescope. And at the bottom is what happens if you take out all of the sources, all the nearby stuff from that image. You get this pattern of hot and dark, hot and less hot patches. And the light that we receive here is consistent with being light from these very massive stars. Just one per galaxy, and because they're very big, they run through their uh, fuel very quickly, and they explode, and they fill the rest of the galaxy for the first time with the elements that we want to make interesting things of. Carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and all the rest come from these first and subsequent generations of stars. Now, at this point, we've had stars, we begin to see the first galaxies, and we reach the point where we can reach back and see. And so one of the most exciting images of the last year was this one. This is an image of a particularly distant galaxy seen less than a billion years after the Big Bang. It's the red dot at the centre of this image. And in case you think that's not exciting enough, the press release that came with this image looked like this, <laughs> which is much more what I think was going on in the early universe. We have these galaxies, these collections of stars beginning to come together uh, and to beginning to fuel in this, in this actually quite interesting cartoon, beginning to grow black holes at their centre and beginning to build up material um, into galaxies. So we have our, our normal galaxies. Um, and it's not long after that that they begin to look a bit more like the galaxies that we see today. This is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. This is what happens if you point Hubble at an apparently boring patch of sky. You leave the shutter open for a long while, 
and you uh, collect the light and add it up so you see these faint galaxies. And some of these are amongst the most distant known. But they're systems of stars just as our galaxies are. Um, the stars in them are younger. That's a good test of this crazy picture of the Big Bang that I'm talking about. The stars in the early universe should be younger. And the galaxies are smaller. And what you could think of them as the building blocks from which we assemble the rest of the structure that we see today. And that happens through a process of merging. Because many of these galaxies are attracted to each other by their mutual gravitational pull, and we get spectacular collisions. And the story of the assembly of structure through the universe's history is a story of collisions. So as an example of one of those, we're going to jump to the future briefly. This is the Milky Way as it is today, and the time in the bottom right is time into the future. Because you see, our Milky Way galaxy, a normal spiral system of a few hundred billion stars or so, is, a, is about to collide with our nearest neighbour, the Andromeda galaxy in the bottom left here, a slightly bigger system and similarly a spiral. And so in a few billion years' time, these two systems will collide, and it's going to be spectacular. So I recommend you book your tickets for Stargazing Oxford now, uh, because we'll be able to see this wonderful collision. And the two galaxies will collide. And the remarkable thing is you get this spectacular uh, chaos. You get these stars flung out of the galaxy. But in this collision, no two stars will collide. There's enough space in the galaxy between the stars that you can have this much of a collision without a direct stellar collision. But the gas and dust in the galaxy will collide. That will trigger star formation, just as has happened many, many times in the history of the universe. And you produce a nice, big, bold, elliptical galaxy out of two spirals. And so this, has been this kind of process has been happening for the last 13.7 billion years. And it's that process that's produced uh, the universe we see today. So I'm just going to show you a map of our local universe uh, as it is today. So we're going to start, we're going to show you about half a million galaxies in about a minute or so. We're going to start on the Milky Way and we're going to zoom outwards through space. You'll be able to see the structure that this, these gravitational forces have produced for us. And so as we head out, you see that there's a lot of space. Space is pretty empty. There's space between the galaxies. And as we keep going outwards, we see places where there are lots of galaxies we call clusters or filaments, and places where there are very few galaxies, which we call voids, the empty bits of space. And we get this marvellous cosmic web uh, of large-scale structure. And in a second, we'll stop, and this will rotate. You'll get a real sense of the honeycomb of space uh, that gravity has produced for us to live in. So this is the grand-scale history of the universe. But... We're forgiven, I think, for being parochial creatures, for caring a little about our neighbourhood. So while each dot here is a galaxy, special in its own uh, way, presumably special to its inhabitants if it has any, I think we need to focus in not on the grand cosmic web, but we need to focus in on the Milky Way itself. The Milky Way, I've already mentioned, this is what it looks like, we think. It's an ordinary uh, spiral galaxy, not particularly big, not particularly small, a place where stars can form. And they form mostly in these spiral arms that you see that are our galaxy's most distinctive feature. Because in the spiral arms, you have gas and dust. And this is an infrared map of part of our galaxy's um, star-forming heart, really. And you can see there's plenty of structure in the gas. There's the Loch Ness Monster over here. 
Uh, it is real, it's just bigger than we possibly imagined, uh, several light years across. Um, and within the dark parts of this system, uh, of, of this gas and dust, stars are able to collapse and form. They could do that because within these dust clouds, um, the temperature is very low, maybe as low as just a few degrees above absolute zero, the coldest temperature you can get. And so a cloud can collapse. The density at the centre of that collapsing cloud will increase and it will produce nuclear reactions, the nuclear fusion that powers a star. And so you get a successive generation of stars. And our sun must have formed in just such a gas cloud something like five billion years ago. It's about halfway through its lifetime, by the way. It's got about another five billion years to go. So we're, we're reasonably secure. <coughs> but of course, we're interested in the sun because as well as forming the star, once the star formed, there was a leftover disk of material around the sun, which we've just been hearing about. And in that disk of material, through processes that we don't completely understand, we were able to assemble planets. Um, <clears throat> we understand the start of that process. You get these little dust grains. I keep saying dust, by the way. When astronomers say dust, we don't mean the stuff that ends up on your mantelpiece. Uh, we mean little grains, no bigger than a grain of sand, probably about a tenth of the size of a sand grain, but made of silicon just like sand or made of carbon, sometimes with an icy uh, crust. And it's from this dust that we assemble the planets. When two dust grains collide, they stick together. And when those larger dust grains collide, they stick together. And you build up bigger and bigger things until you get to stuff that's pebble-sized, small pebble-sized. Then we don't know what happens. We don't understand the next bit. Uh, but allow me to just click my fingers and jump to the point where we've got boulder-sized things. And then when you collide them together, they begin to stick again. Uh, we will, at some point, solve the pebble-to-boulder problem, but it, we'll save it for another day. And we know it must happen because we build up bigger and bigger things. And we get these very different kinds of planets we've already heard a bit about. In fact, in our solar system, we got Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, we got the rocky planets, and we got Jupiter, Saturn, gas giants, and Uranus and Neptune, the ice giants, and as we've heard, the rubble that's left over. By the way, this picture is deeply disturbing. I, you know, you've got the sun on the left, and you've got the planets lit up from the right, so it's not clear to me what's lighting the planets up. Um, I just, occasionally people point this out, so I wanted to make that clear. Uh, this is not a real image. Um, uh, but we've assembled these planets, and this is a very stable and happy solar system. Could live here, I think. And of course, we care about this solar system of all solar systems because we've got Earth. And we've just formed, it's about four and a half billion years ago, we've just formed this little rocky planet that happens to sit at just the right distance from the sun to be in what I like to call the Goldilocks zone, the place that's not too hot and not too cold. Serious astronomers call it the habitable zone. But I think Goldilocks is good. Um, and Earth, the nascent Earth, is in a prime position for life to form. Then it has a very bad day. So this is an image of what we think might have happened to the early Earth. This is something the size of Mars today hitting the Earth. And this is our best model, best idea, for what might have caused the formation of the Moon. So we think this large impact happened, there was something careening around the inner solar system, lots of material from the Earth's crust and its upper parts were thrown up into space and they coalesced to form our nice large moon around uh, our, our Earth. And this is a good thing for the Earth, it does, the moon does several things for us, but one of the things it does is it keeps our climate nice and stable. 
So without the Moon, it's possible that the Earth would wobble on its axis over time. We know that Mars has done this. And it gets very dramatic shifts in its climate as its pole first points towards the Sun and then points away again over millions of years. The, Earth's, the presence of the Moon around the Earth keeps us nice and stable. So that doesn't happen, but it's, the Moon is only there because of this catastrophic impact. And speaking of impacts, of course, if you look at the lunar surface, what you have is a record of the last few billion years of solar system history. And every crater on the lunar surface records the impact of something that hit uh, the, the moon and therefore records the kind of things that were flying through the inner solar system at the time. So to our surprise, when we, went, when we got data back or rocks back from the Apollo missions, we found out that the, most of the craters on the moon seemed to be formed in what's now known as the late heavy bombardment. So there was a period about 800 million years after the solar system formed, so that's about 3.7 billion years ago, uh, where suddenly the inner solar system was rushed with rocks when it was a really dangerous time to be around. Um, and we think that that bombardment may have hit the Earth as well as the Moon. There's a bit of controversy there, but the odds are that what happened to the Moon happened to us as well. Whether it was the late heavy bombardment or not, we know that, that by that point, a bombardment of Earth, particularly by comets, had done us a favour. It had created the blue planet that we're used to because most of the water on Earth was delivered to Earth by comets after the Earth had formed. When the Earth was first formed, it was very hot and any water that existed would have boiled off into space. But then there were enough comets around these icy bodies in the solar system to give us back our blue planet. And of course, the reason we care about this particular planet isn't anything to do with the water, it's because it's got astronomers in it. Uh, you know, that's the critical thing. Or more generally, let's be a bit more generous. Let's talk about life. And the thing that bothers me about life on Earth is that it's basically insignificant. So this is a diagram to scale of the Earth. I haven't put in the detail. But the black line around the centre, around, around the outside here, is the maximum extent which life has penetrated. It's about a 15-kilometre thick line around the Earth. And to get here, we've gone from the early universe, in that hot, dense state, we've gone through star formation and galaxy collisions and solar system formation and the late heavy bombardment. And I'm slightly uncomfortable with the idea that the most interesting place in the universe is this thin black line around the Earth. So is this really all there is? Is this really, even if we accept that life is kind of interesting, I'm prepared to believe that it is. Are we really supposed to restrict our attention to this thin black line? Well, the good news is the answer is that we don't have to anymore. And there are a couple of directions of research that make this a really exciting time to be talking about astronomy, even if you care about life. One of them is the fact that we're beginning to explore our neighbour planet. We're beginning to explore Mars. And this is a picture from the rover Curiosity of the first sample taken from inside a rock on Mars. So Curiosity was able to, it's this robot geologist, it was able to drill down inside a rock and pull out material and place it in its scoop. And I love this picture. I love this picture for two reasons. One, because we all know that Mars is red, right? We all know that Mars is red because it's rusty, because it's, uh, it, it's interacted with oxygen in the atmosphere. But inside the rock, this hasn't been anywhere near the atmosphere, so it hasn't yet rusted. And so it's a different colour. 
And so the inside of Mars rocks is not red. But the second reason to love this picture is, a, is the first science that they've got out of this. And this analysis of this sample has shown that Mars has schnapps, which is very exciting. Uh, and by schnapps, I mean sulfur, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus, the atomic ingredients that are important to life on Earth. So in other words, Mars, which we knew was once a wet world and had water, also has the other ingredients we might need for life. Who knows whether life ever started there? We'll find out over the next few decades. But if you don't like Mars, we can, of course, go even further. We've discovered now that planets are common. We see planets everywhere. Almost everywhere we look, we can detect planets. So this is now almost a year out of date. But this is the 786 known confirmed planets to scale. So we don't have to restrict ourselves to our, universe, our solar system. We don't have to restrict ourselves to thinking about life on the Earth. We can have a grander vision. We can look out and we can look for life out amongst the stars in a myriad different worlds, some of which look the same as Earth, perhaps, some of which are very, very different. We can begin to ask questions about the whole history of the universe and not just tell the story from the perspective of our ordinary planet around an ordinary star in an ordinary galaxy. Thank you very much.